Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2 Background Part A The Golden Age Chapter 1 It was a tense, almost heavy atmosphere. Amongst the crowds of citizens waiting her arrival, a pall of positive enthusiasm akin to that of a grand victory in a far-off land hung in the air. The feeling of expectation was immense, for soon their queen, who embodied their empire and epitomised their sense of self, would reveal herself to her people. She would be glorious, sixty years on the throne in a diamond jubilee and celebrating not just the significance of her reign, but also the very fact that this century, the 19th, had been hers. In the ashes of the Napoleonic Wars, Britain took the opportunity to mould the post-war arrangements at the Congress of Vienna, and an image of prosperity, of wealth, of resplendence had been created that hadn't dissipated for the duration of the century since. Britain's writ had only increased its reach since 1815. Wars, revolutions, victories, diplomacy, colonialism, opportunism, good fortune, great skill, incredible ingenuity, all had played their part in propelling these damp islands to the top of the world's food chain, to the point that now, at Victoria's Diamond Jubilee of June 1897, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland was not simply a great power, She was foremost among nations. She was the world power in a sea of great powers. A glittering jewel in a sea of gold. Like out of a bubbling cauldron, the men and women of Britain had overflowed to foreign places with a strange vengeance and sense of purpose. Ever since the 1870s, the empire had expanded with such fury and pace that maps, statistical references and surveys simply could not keep up. As it grew with unprecedented speed, so too did the public interest grow. 
As the scramble for influence and lands in the recently tapped African continent began and then drew to a close, a new kind of imperialism, the new imperialism, was born. This attitude to colonialism defined the new British attitude towards the world and their place within it. Britons were born and bred to be the greatest of men and women that their empire could muster. So great they were that their very borders could not hold them down, for this empire required settlers, pioneers, statesmen, ambassadors, administrators, diplomats, emissaries, secretaries, governors and more to expand and thrive. And this patchwork of states and possessions across the world was not disjointed. It was not poised on the edge of ruin as so many empires before had been. The Jubilee processions demonstrated to the people of London, the true imperial and world capital, that Britain's far-flung possessions were united. They all meant something, were connected, could all display their loyalty and compete to display the greatest show of loyalty with one another. For a chance to get a nod or mere gesture of approval from their renowned sovereign, at 78 years old, who was the mother of so many other nations, and the grandmother of many others still. On a world map smeared with the red of the empire, an individual had a one in five chance of being born into what Britain possessed, and thus becoming another of Victoria's millions across the world. To claim that the sun never set on one's empire was a Spanish invention, but the Spanish had held their empire only to lose it. Britain, on the other hand, held white, English-speaking dominions across the world, who together had only become more, not less, loyal to the British centre over the years. The Spanish may have invented the term, but the British could claim to have reinvented it and taken it yet further as a concept. On every continent her flag flew so that her laws, customs and values were now in place in Africa, Asia, Australasia, North and South America, parts of the Middle East and beyond. The contingent parts of the empire that made it so valuable, its white dominions that could be called upon to support the motherland, were believed by many to hold the key to its true success. Many other states, the United States of America, Germany and Italy, had unified and fought wars to do so within the previous years. Perhaps it was time, not through war but through the utilising of loyalties and honeyed words, to remould the empire into a federation centred upon London. Perhaps it was time, some imperial statesmen theorised, to tie the world together in a British ribbon marked by the occasion of its longest serving monarch. What was it all for? Some supposed, and even insisted, that the reason and cause of empire was to empower the weak, to bring civilization, Christianity and commerce abroad, and to end the misery that those had suffered from under their tribal overlords. Britain stood for liberalism, it stood for freedom for all and wealth if one could take it. It was a gift to be brought to those that had not seen its flag or heard its trumpet sound. To others, the empire embodied the military power and prestige that had brought it such worldly gains. The navy was the greatest and most renowned in the world, while the army possessed such a glittering reputation that the nations of the world were said to tremble. This was what imperialism and the empire were for. The creation and consolidation of true raw power. To others still, the empire signified the right to rule other peoples and direct their lives. These alien peoples with their alien cultures and alien gods and alien practices had to be tamed and converted for their own sakes, but their resources, possessions and lands were in the process, justifiably, Britons to take. Not least because the poor wretches could not grasp how to make use of them. 
social Darwinism, which dictated that the strong races survive and thrive at the expense of the others because of their advanced and stronger nature and inherent disposition for success, was further justification of these views. Indeed, to many of Britain's statesmen, the empire meant everything. The power, prestige, right to rule, right to interfere, the proof of greatness. And it was not an issue over which any true patriot would argue. Queen Victoria sent an interesting message across the world mere minutes before she attached herself to the procession awaiting her at the palace. By communicating through telegraph, she was able to signify her gratefulness, her hopes, her thanks to her subjects, wherever they may be in the world. It was in this telegraph room at the Buckingham Palace that the simple message, Thank my people, may God bless them, was expressed. The telegram was pinged throughout the world, and the Queen's message reached Ottawa, South Africa, West Africa, North Africa, the Mediterranean, Gibraltar, the Caribbean, China's bustling imperial ports, Australia's sunburnt lieutenant, and India's governor-general. All greeted the message with a sense of unworthy awe. The sovereign under whom their world turned had signified her approval of their works and deeds. She had gazed upon what they had created and saw that it was good. It was indeed a glorious day. Across the world that Britain did not own, in Europe and America, foreign opinion held that Britain's was the greatest empire, that her empire established and qualified her as the true heir of Rome itself, while her statesmen and administrators were agents of a splendid age, a golden age, of long years and without parallel, whose banners and words were known to many and respected by all. 50,000 men marched and took part in the parade, with one very significant woman at its centre. For a few years before, and upon the suggestion of the colonial secretary, Joseph Chamberlain, small-time celebrations and imperial festivals were postponed for the greater event. This great event of significance on the 22nd of June, 1897, which was meant to signify a diamond jubilee, but which had also been hijacked to demonstrate the empire's very glory and splendour itself. It was to be a festival of Britishness, a commemoration and celebration of all that Britons had done and would do in the future and during the era of their favourite queen. So large was the parade that it was divided into two columns, with one huge hulking figure, Captain Ames of the Royal Horse Guards, leading the way figuratively and literally since he stood at six foot eight, making him the tallest man in the British army. The other half was led by Field Marshal Lord Roberts, an Indian general without parallel in British estimation, thanks to his many worthy victories in the jewel of Victoria's crown, India. Making their way towards St. Paul's Cathedral, where the ceremonial procession would religiously formalise the significance of the day, the crowd were struck by the varied resplendence of those involved. Wide, bulky young men from Australia hardened and bettered by a diet of fresh air, vigorous exercise and wilder food, appeared in the parade to represent the better version of the British man that he owed so much to and now would give his life for. Canadian hussars also struck a similar chord, though the ladies certainly preferred the distinctive bronzing of the Australians who seemed to positively burst out of their uniforms. Camel troops from Bicaner and North Borneo's headhunter regiments added a fearsome foreign element to the proceedings, increased by their bright red pillbox-like hats, though they were at least commanded and tamed by a British officer. 
The 17 officers of the IIS, or Imperial Indian Service, were all said to be princes, though of course their dominions paled in comparison to those of Britain's princes, and they had wisely given up the royal garb for the British military uniform. Hong Kong Chinese police added an oriental element with their conical hats, which looked to some like an upturned bowl worn on the head. African tribesmen from the Niger got a showing, as did recently embattled tribes from the Gold Coast, and the interior where Britain had recently resolved a quarrel with France. Jamaicans in white gowns and ornately embroidered jackets added a further sense of pomp to the parades. Cypriot auxiliaries appeared so close to Turks that some Brits dared to hurl abuse at them, safe in the knowledge that the recent Ottoman atrocities against the Armenians granted them the higher moral ground. Massive New Zealand Maoris followed, some believed to weigh in excess of 28 stone. It was a sight of barbarism on the one hand and order on the other, comparable to a parade conducted by Rome two millennia before. The citizens of Rome looked on just as the citizens of London did now, with wonder and awe at all that their countrymen had done, and all the peoples they had conquered, and riches they had reached. Among Victoria were also the other crowned heads and dignitaries from foreign lands, and within the procession could be counted a crown prince, numerous emperors, 23 princesses, a grand duke, 3 grand duchesses, 4 duchesses, 40 Indian potentates riding 3 abreast, all gorgeously decorated and confidently moving towards their destination. Background sounds included the booming sounds of guns, the chiming of clanging bells, the proud sounds of hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions, all singing patriotic songs in a strange but wondrous disorder. Tens of thousands of Union Jacks fluttered about the shop windows and from the hands of the onlookers who twirled and waved them with euphoria unmatched in previous Imperial outings. The Papal Nuncio, who shared a carriage with the representative of the Emperor of China, was said to have been unable to keep his mouth closed as the procession continued to its conclusion. Throughout did the Queen, deeply moved by the electric enthusiasm and joy she seemed to spark in her people, shed numerous tears. Greeted at St. Paul's by her son and heir, the Prince of Wales, she alighted from the carriage and was received with knightly courtesy. By the time the entire day had come to an end, Victoria was exhausted but greatly pleased. Nobody could claim that the day's events, which across the empire had not yet come to an end, and in some cases were only beginning, were anything but a success. In her diamond jubilee, Britain had shown the world that her passion for pageantry and power was ever-present, and that any would-be challenger would not stand a chance of matching, let alone bettering, the processions that had marked one of the greatest anniversaries experienced in British memory. She would have been yet more pleased to note that virtually all of the recipients that her telegram had touched had replied with a patriotic fervour unaffected by the miles that separated their domains. Her agents were already in the process of collecting and summarising those replies for Her Majesty. And then her adoring public, to read. It would stand as further evidence of the fact recognised on this day that no empire stands taller, that no citizen is prouder, and no power is stronger than that of the British Empire. The Diamond Jubilee had been a rampant exercise in PR, but it also signified the beginning of a new age of empire, one which the average citizen now understood and could be expected to take true pride and joy in. 
Decades before, a vague sense of imperialism and certain feelings of nationhood were enjoyed by the populace, but a definite level of disconnect accompanied any news of victory or any news of loss that came with the mysteriously spread out possessions of the empire. Was it merely the result of having so great and powerful a navy? Was it merely a requirement of establishing lucrative and secure trade routes across the world? Could it be said that it came simply because the British citizen could not help but explore the world itself and settle down in lands once considered foreign and mysterious, in the process leaving his old home behind? Now here it was declared that empire was an end in itself, because imperialism dictated that the process of empire building was a righteous one, and that the benefits that came from its 400 million subjects who governed a sixth of the globe formed their own unique value. Only here, on the streets of London, on the 22nd of June 1897, did the British people actually begin to appreciate what that value was. The unfathomable reach that their empire had gained, the people it had touched, improved and saved, the merits it had achieved and won, the wealth it had acquired and seized, all were on display. For so long the empire had been talked of and talked about, even described in detail, now it was seen for all it was worth, and only the most cynical and nonconformist of citizens would claim that it was worth anything but the world. One could forgive the citizen that watched the jubilee procession for not understanding or appreciating the full extent of the empire. The recent scramble for Africa had added territories of incomprehensible size to the empire, though most there resembled only territory in name only, and had little but red on the map to signify their Britishness. Half empty and half explored, the myths and ways of these African lands could be understood and learned in time, for now it was sufficient to claim them for the motherland. Could any Briton truly wrap their head around the number of islands for refueling, of waterways to control trade like the Suez and Gibraltar, or of minor island clusters designed to protect larger possessions? The trade networks that these underappreciated pieces of land guarded and ensured stretched and snaked across the seven seas, populated by a naval service that constituted two-thirds of every ship built, launched or sailing in the world. Every other power had not simply stood back and waited as Britain had acted either. Many of these possessions and lessons that had been learned were gained in previous wars with old rivals. South Africa had come from the Dutch, parts of Canada, India, Africa and South America from the French, parts of the Caribbean from Spain, Hong Kong from the Opium Wars against China, the independence of Canada itself from the United States of America. Conjoining these victories were monuments to the great men that had accomplished these feats, as well as the late heroes that gave their lives to ensure them. At its height, did Rome hold sway over an ancient empire of 120 million. Britain now controlled well over three times that number, with 400 million or so souls spread out across the globe in 11 million square miles. It was linked by the power of the navy, the spirit of its administrators, the symbols of its past and the enthusiasm of its settlers. But for all intents and purposes, the map of the empire appeared a strange animal, and indeed it was. In 1897, one could justifiably claim that the empire had happened at an absence of mind. This had been the thesis of the author and Cambridge historian Sir John Seeley in his work The Expansion of England in 1883. 
This did not necessarily mean its creation had been akin to a fool's errand, but Seeley did uphold that the British at home were positively indifferent to what occurred abroad, and the only time the empire mattered to them was when a new tax or a great victory came to pass. There had been no great strategy behind the empire, it had simply unfolded in the way that it had. India began as a business venture that had capitalised on the fragmented nature of the Mughal Empire and the collapse of its rule. Canada was the end portion of Britain's once all-encompassing legacy in North America. New Zealand was the result of pioneering magnates searching for new opportunities for wealth and expansion overseas. Australia began its life as a penal colony, most notably sucking in many rebellious Irish during its early history, until it officially joined the League of Dominions in the late 19th century. African acquisitions had been somewhat more planned, if only because of the dream that existed of creating a railway to run from the top to the bottom of the continent, with the need to capture the lands in between. Efforts to achieve this had hit a notable snag in the previous decade, with the rebellion in the Sudan and the infamous murder of Charles Gordon, the British governor there, dampening African enthusiasm and standing in the way of total African mastery. More African disasters were to come, and had come before, but Britons could at least take solace in the fact that a determined, stoic and no-nonsense military man was on the case. Britain had never planned to own so much of the world, but one acquisition, protectorate, lease, paramountcy, suzerainty, concession and area of interest led to another, once another resource was discovered, another shipping lane invested, or another people without God converted, another strategic position fortified. Britons did not find it difficult to rationalise the expansion of their realm to new regions. It was only common sense to suppose that the bigger the empire, the greater the need for security, the greater the need for armed forces, the greater the strength of armed forces, the greater the ability of these armed forces to ensure expansion and protection. So the argument went with trade as well. The growth of trade led to the defence of that trade. Where the docks of Liverpool bristled with slave ships, now Britain sent battle cruisers from these same docks to combat the trade at Africa's troubled coasts. Lands where settlers had once migrated to avoid the writ of London now had turned back towards their motherland with a sense of patriotic mission, encouraging further missions of federation and consolidation in additional lands to increase the profits. It was, in the words of Jan Morris in her trilogy On the Rise, Peak and Decline of the British Empire, like a monumental snowball, and the British people had suddenly become aware of the staggering momentum of it all. Sir John Seeley had bemoaned that Britain now had a responsibility to these disparate peoples, embodied in her patrolling of the slave trade, her liberalising efforts at home, and her civilising missions in Africa, among others. Hundreds of thousands of languages necessitated a staff of linguistic enthusiasts and specialists to police and administrate the sprawling entities of Empire too, and Britain had a responsibility to train these men for the task, just as surely as she had to train her soldiers to fight. Her worldwide reach, not to mention her worldwide roots, now created worldwide responsibilities. Problems that occurred were hers to solve, no matter their origins or location, since whether they occurred within or without her borders, as the world's leading moral force, she was required to act in some capacity. Liberally and morally, though she may have designed her foreign policy abroad, it was authoritatively and conservatively that she governed at home. In 1895, 
two years before the Diamond Jubilee, the Conservative Party under Lord Salisbury had been propelled into power in coalition with the Liberal Unionists, an offshoot of the Liberal Party, which in 1886 had rebelled, owing to the party's stance on Irish home rule. Conservative and imperial elements within British society across the board were horrified at the prospect of a quasi-independent Ireland which, though it would be ruled from a parliament in Dublin, would still answer to London in the end. The agreement went too far for many Liberal Unionists in the Liberal Party, who coined the term because of their commitment to keep the Empire united. William Gladstone, perhaps Britain's founding father of political liberalism, remained convinced to the end of the need to grant the Irish their limited political freedoms. The problem was it was a minority view in Britain, but a majority view among the Irish Parliamentary Party that had always supported the Liberals in the House of Commons, and which represented, in itself, the third largest party in the UK. Gladstone could never let the issue of Home Rule go then, despite its explosive possibilities. In 1886, after months of waiting before making his final decision, Joseph Chamberlain, pegged as Gladstone's successor in the Liberal Party, walked out of it to join some of his most skilled and experienced colleagues in the political wilderness. This political split dramatically affected the Liberal Party and British politics for good. Containing some of the party's most vibrant members, the loss of the so-called Liberal Unionists hit Gladstone like a bomb. His party was still struggling with the aftershocks of that bomb when, nine years later in 1895, these former Liberal colleagues joined with their once conservative rivals in a coalition to dominate politics. Their commitment to certain conservative principles bound their uneasy alliance closer, but it was to the imperialist ideas and values in empire that their members clung so tightly which really made the coalition flourish. Joseph Chamberlain, once pegged to succeed Gladstone as the leader of the Liberals, now had his chosen position as Colonial Secretary approved. It was to be a busy posting for the next decade. Chamberlain embodied the new imperialism of aggressive, patriotic expansion that had propelled Britain to new heights only very recently. He wanted a greater navy, a greater impetus on consolidation, and a firmer hand and greater resources to boot. To give his office of colonial secretary more teeth, he felt it had to be treated properly. Encouraging vigorously the Diamond Jubilee was thus one of his core strategies. Britain could best see for themselves what the colonial office did if it was displayed in front of them in an orgy of resplendent brilliance. Once they saw it, they would clamour for better resources to be directed from the foreign office and more money to be granted from the treasury, where the colonial office sat unfortunately wedged in between. That the British people had experienced such an imperialist awakening was no accident. Chamberlain had not necessarily orchestrated a diamond jubilee, but his enthusiasm for it to be the greatest spectacle in the history of British excellence had a great impact on the end result. It was a result to be proud of, a great wave of patriotism followed the jubilee, that would enable Chamberlain to act with public support and more monies in the future if he was able to ride it. Chamberlain was able to ride this wave, and it was just as well, because as he well knew, an empire as large as this required constant vigilance, and was prone to constant crises if not managed correctly. The Americans had been acting up over the Venezuelan border dispute yet again, and the treaty there had yet to be signed. The Chinese were believed to be on the verge of total collapse, and Chamberlain had to be ready to seize, for Britain, her lion's share of the spoils. 
The Boers in South Africa were standing squarely in the way of a federation that constituted Chamberlain's long-running dream for the region. Egypt and the Nile Basin were once again in French crosshairs as a rumoured French expedition headed for Fashoda, of all places, in the Sudan, aimed to take the troubled region from under Britain's nose. Russia continued to flex its muscles on the Indian border and on the borders of China to boot. The colonial secretary, in other words, could not afford to sit still just as much as he could not afford public apathy any longer. He knew he would be kept busy over the coming years, and he desperately needed the moral and practical support of the British citizen to get him through. Seeing the results of the incredible PR campaign he had just played a great part in organising, Chamberlain couldn't help but feel as though this support would be his for the taking. It was no accident that the day's events had avoided the poorest areas of London. Though Her Majesty had been appraised of how bad things have gotten there, it would only be in reports released in a few years' time that the harrowing facts would be revealed. How one-third of Britons lived in abject poverty, how the workhouses terrified, how the children starved, how the aristocracy hoarded the wealth and resources for themselves, how to some change would be too little too late. A small flicker of hope for those less fortunate classes was on the horizon, though. A section of society was beginning to mobilise and politicise itself, and it rejected notions of alliance with the Liberal Party's idea of socialist practices. Within a few years, an independent Labour Party would be established. Though not yet on the political radar of Lord Salisbury, Chamberlain, Victoria or many others, its emergence reflected the idea that, Although 1897 was a year of power at its peak and supreme confidence, it was also one of the final years of the old order, as Britain began to step out of the Victorian era and towards an age of change. A democratic revolution was on the cards, seen in the small protests launched by a few women during the Jubilee procession who dared to chant suffragette slogans in the name of the women acquiring the vote. The enfranchisement of all men on a limited basis had only recently been realised, but this had added a sense of fear among the upper classes that suffragettes only aggravated. Britain was too great, too powerful and too prestigious to be held hostage by notions of democracy or women's voting rights. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It was a contradictory phenomenon that the liberal principles British agents so desperately wished to preach abroad did not apply to a significant segment of her own populace. Democracy for many was as dangerous as it was ambiguous, as mysterious as it was powerful. Few could truly grasp, in the age of technical universal suffrage and chasms between rich and poor, upper and lower class, what the word really meant. Thanks to what Britain had done across the world, though, thanks to its feats of arms, bouts of good luck and acts of great courage and skill, on this day, in June 1897, the British people could finally grasp what empire truly meant to them. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.